You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. We're going to jump into the book of Hosea, and it's the first week of 12 where we're going to cover these 12 books called the Minor Prophets. In the, uh, originally, when they were put together in the Hebrew Bible, they were just called the 12, which I think is a pretty cool name, the 12. And so um, we're going to be working through the 12, and we're going to take one book each week. So there's going to be a lot to get through each week. Some of these books are longer than others. Hosea is one of the longer ones. Um, The other minor prophets tend to be quite short, uh, but either way, it's going to be a big, big task to get through it. So I do recommend you do pick up one of those study guides. It'll just help us all uh, week to week as we seek to work through uh, these minor prophets. But by way of introduction, really, to to the whole series... Um, I want to read to you the very last little paragraph of Hosea. This is probably the author of Hosea who had put together Hosea's preaching and writings and put it together in a book to publish, and he's added this at the end, and I think it's a really good word for us just to introduce the next 12 weeks up to Christmas. So listen to this. Here's what he says to us, and it's clear it's meant for all generations to come, including us. He says, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. He's really thrown down a challenge to us as we open up these minor prophets. He knows that the prophets speak to us in ways that that we are prone to kind of rail against. We're prone to harden our hearts to the words of these prophets. How do I know that? Because most of these guys were killed because of what they said. They were not killed by a bunch of crazy maniacs. They were killed by God's people who didn't like what they were hearing. They didn't like the fact that they were being called to account, that they were being convicted, that they were being uh, exhorted to repent. And so while we, I might not be you know, rushed at the end of the sermon and beaten to death... That, that probably won't happen in an Anglican church at least. You might do something just as bad, which is completely harden your hearts to God's Word. And so we, we, we don't want to be the ones who stumble over these prophetic words. We want to be the ones who walk in them, who walk in them. And so I'm going to pray for us now that that would be true that God would answer this prayer for for the next 12 weeks, that as we look at these words, often confronting, often convicting, that rather than hardening ourselves and stumbling, we would walk in them. You want to pray with me? All right. Father, we come before you in humility. And where we are proud, we ask that you would make us humble. We want to walk in your word and in your ways. We don't want to be those who harden our hearts. So you know us, Lord. You know us intimately. And I pray that for each one of us, your spirit would be working in different ways to make us more like your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. I want you to pick up your Bibles. I want you to turn to the book of Hosea. I will be taking us through this, um, through the entirety of this book, not verse by verse, 
but just the major sections. So a good thing to realize from the beginning is that this book um, was, is really a, a collection of 25 years of Hosea's writing and his preaching. 25 years he spent speaking to God's people, called by God to call God's people back to faithfulness, back to fidelity. And, and, and he was ministering at a time of just chaos in the kingdom of Israel. He was ministering in uh, what is known as the northern kingdom. So 200 years before Hosea came on the scene, the, the kingdom of Israel was split in two. There was the nor- northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and, uh, and Hosea is living in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's living in a time of both of chaos and prosperity. So the king of the time, Jeroboam II, is a very smart operator. He has made alliances with the great powers of Egypt and Assyria, and as long as he keeps paying them, they'll just leave him quite alone uh, for a while. We're going to see later on Assyria comes in and completely destroys Israel and it exiles their people. But for the time being, he's doing a good job. They are, they are experiencing great prosperity. There is, there is wine in the vats and there is fat on the table. It is going well for the northern kingdom of Israel. However, in the midst of this prosperity, they are experiencing great spiritual famine. This is what often happens, not just in with the people of Israel, but I think with us as well, when things are going well. Do we rely on God day to day for our every breath? Not so much. We're prone to wander during those times where, we, where we're experiencing peace. And that's exactly what's happening to God's people. In addition to sort of leaving aside God from their sort of daily interaction and dependence, they're also starting to pursue the gods of these other nations, they're, they're particularly um, taken with God Baal, Baal, B-A-A-L. They like that God because he's the God of, of, uh, he's the God of fertility. And you've got to put yourself in their position. They are an agrarian uh, population. Like If they don't grow stuff, they don't eat. So you get a God who can provide you with you know, crops and sons, and you're going to probably start worshipping that God just to cover your bases, right? Yeah, we'll worship Jehovah, we'll, we'll worship Yahweh, but, we, you know, just in case, we'll, we'll do these other gods as well, just to cover our bases. And so really the big idea of the book of Hosea is that God's people are committing adultery against the one true God, they're pursuing these other gods, and Hosea's job is to call them back call them back to faithfulness. And so that's really the measure of the book. 25 years of Hosea's preaching, calling, pleading, exhorting, warning God's people to return to him. And most of the book is written in, in the genre of poetry, which can mean it, it has great capacity to be beautiful, but also a kind of a capacity to be confusing at times, employing poetic language. And because we're simple people and we like things laid out logically, that can cause us to trip up a little bit. But hopefully during this time, we'll see the clear themes and threads that God is weaving throughout this book. So you ready to go? Let's jump in to the book of Hosea. We're going to start at chapter 1, verse 1, all right? And this is where we're introduced to Hosea. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, 
Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So those first kings mentioned, kings of the, the southern kingdom, and Jeroboam II, the only king, the, the longest reigning king, the, also the wayward and rebellious king of the northern kingdom. And so into that context, Hosea comes with his message. And a good way of sort of understanding this book is to notice that there's three main sections, all right? And this is what we're going to go through this morning. The first section is chapter 1 to 3, and this is focused on Hosea's own marriage to a woman named Goma. We'll get to her in a second. Second section is the, the, the majority of the book, 4 to 10, the causes and effects of Israel's adultery. And then the last section, 12 to 13, is a history lesson from Hosea about the people of Israel. And so we're going to just track through that and see what does this book say to us? What does it mean for us? How does it apply to us? And is there any hope at all for God's people? So, first section, Hosea's marriage to Gomer. This is the thing that really kind of sticks out, I think, in the book itself. Uh, It's a personal story to Hosea, but it's also graphic and heartbreaking. So, so Hosea is married to this woman, Gomer. Don't recommend that as a name for your daughter if you, if you have one. Um, it's, you know, I'm sure it was beautiful back in the day. Apologies if, if there are any Gomers here this morning. But Gomer is not just a, not the most attractive name, but she's also not the most attractive person. I don't mean in terms of her looks. Uh, I mean in terms of her character because she is an adulteress. This is something we learned from the beginning. It's not clear whether she was an adulteress before she was married to uh, Hosea, or after, or both, I get the sense that she was just an adulteress from go to woe, and she is, um, she, 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 this is a sin that she, um, that she commits and participates in over and over again. She, she gives three kids to Hosea, so they have these three kids together, but in the midst of that, she is going and sleeping with several other men, and God's word to Hosea is that in response to Gomer's adultery, he is to pursue her, uh, to forgive her, and literally to redeem her. That is, to buy her back. She, she owes a lot of money to these lovers, and he is not only to pursue her, to forgive her, but to pay her price, the price of her sin, as it were. As it were. And so this is what God says in chapter 3, verse 1 to 3. The Lord God said to me, Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, the sacrifices to Baal. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leketh of barley, And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or the adulteress or belong to another man. So I will also be to you. The point of all of this, God says, is that Hosea's relationship to Goma is like a prophetic picture of of God's relationship to Israel. He says, just like you have married Goma and taken her to be yours and she has gone and and slept with other men and bound herself to other men, so it is with my relationship with Israel. 
I have taken them. At Mount Sinai, I married them. Right? Remember that? He made covenant with these people, said, you will be my people and I will be your God. It was a marriage ceremony. He married them and they agreed to be bound to him, one flesh, as it were. And really, ever since that time, even as they were marrying, they were committing adultery, golden calf and all of that. And ever since, it's been this ongoing, habitual adultery. And God says, what's happening to you, Hosea? The heartbreak you feel? That's what I feel. That's my experience of marriage to this adulterous people. And yet, God says, you are to pursue her, to forgive her, to redeem her. I just want you to consider... I want you to consider this picture of God's relationship to his people. That as far as God is concerned, when his people are unfaithful, he experiences that as a a husband of an unfaithful wife. Have you ever thought about sin in those terms? I think we're prone probably to go to the courtroom kind of analogy where God is the judge and we are the, the criminals and see sin and and forgiveness in those terms. But actually, I think the majority of, and and that is in the the Scriptures, that analogy is there, but we see, at least in Hosea and, and throughout these prophets, and really much of the Old Testament, that the analogy he gives us is actually a husband and a wife. Not a judge and a criminal, but a husband and an adulterous wife. He experiences our rebellion, our sin, our adultery in those terms. Do you see God like that? Do you see his offence at sin mainly as a judge banging a gavel or as a husband who is heartbroken over his adulterous and wayward wife? I think it kind of reframes the way that we see our own sin, our own culpability, our own unrighteousness. Now, God's response to Israel's adultery, that is to say their idolatry, which is adultery, his response, he's got two options, all right? And these are two legitimate options that God has. Option number one is to divorce his wife, right? God has the option in front of him. If he is just, he can divorce his unfaithful bride, Israel. They have committed adultery against him. He has every right to cut them off. They broke the covenant, not him. And so the logical conclusion is that God says, okay, have it your way. You're free. Go and play the whore. Have as many gods as you like. I'm no longer bound to you. His other option is the counterintuitive one. His other option is to pursue this adulterous wife, to forgive her, to redeem her, to renew covenant with her, to give her a second chance and a third chance and a tenth chance. And I don't need to tell you that if you know the character of God, you know which option he takes. He chooses to pursue. He chooses to renew covenant. And that might seem like the most obvious thing in the world, but just think about it in those terms of adultery, of of betrayal, of brokenheartedness. Shortly before I came to this church, 
when I was ministering in, over in Doncaster, I had a couple that walked in after a morning service and they just looked like ghosts. They just looked like they'd been through the ringer. And so I sat down with them and we were chatting and I could see the husband was just broken. And uh, and uh, he could hardly speak, actually. And it was the wife who actually told me and confessed that she had been unfaithful to him. She'd committed adultery. And uh, they had spent about 18 months figuring out if they could keep the marriage together. Um, initially, they thought that they could, and then the husband was just experiencing this great sense of betrayal. He, he just he couldn't move past it. And so they, they had sort of devised a plan that might help them re, re-wed. And one part of that plan was to come to a church like ours and to have a, a renewal of vows ceremony. It wasn't going to be a big deal. They actually didn't want anyone to know about it, but they wanted to go through the experience of re-wedding, of re-covenanting with one another. And so it was my joy to do that. And it was a profound experience to see them actually say those words, and particularly the husband to say that he would love her for better or worse. That's the option that God takes with his people. He chooses to pursue, to forgive, and to re-covenant with them, to re-wed them, to renew his vows to them. And that's no small thing. Friends, I hope you know this morning the, the reckless love of God, the prodigal love of God. It's not reckless in the sense that it's rash or impulsive. It's reckless in the sense that it's counterintuitive, illogical. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Now, everyone in this room is prone to take that for granted, and that would be a very unwise thing to do. To take advantage of God's compassion, His grace, His mercy is to dishonour him. And so this morning, I want us to recapture that sense of awe, that sense of, of, of incredulity, like, how could you do this? How could you pursue me when I constantly, every day, commit adultery against you? How can you over and over and over again forgive me and redeem me? That's the kind of experience that gives voice to praise and thanksgiving and worship. This is how the New Testament describes this reckless love of God. Right? 1 John chapter 4 says this. This is how God showed his love among us. Okay, so the question is, what is love? The culture has a thousand different answers. An answer for every person, probably. The answer to that question, that eternal question, what is love? This is the answer. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. If your version of your marriage to God contains any element of you contributing to that relationship, then you don't understand the nature of that relationship. Your contribution was adultery, animosity, enmity. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's how He dealt with our rebellion. Well, you might remember recently we preached through Romans, Romans chapter 5. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still adulterers, while we were still prostituting ourselves and dishonoring our marriage vows, while we were still breaking covenant with God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? That's the gospel. That's the reckless love of God. We, we will go into depth in this series. We will, we will be forced to confront all kinds of deep theological issues. And I know this, in this church, we are a church of big words and of deep teachings. But let me tell you what I told the, the kids at the, at the youth service a couple of weeks ago. Let me show you, as a professionally religious man with you know, five years of theological college under my belt, let me show you the deep end of the theological pool. The deep end is this, summed up in the words of an old hymn. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's the deep end. The day you fully understand that is the day you see God face to face. Until then, we just keep deep, deep diving into that truth. And that's the truth that Hosea wants us to understand and to recognize and to glory in and to thank God for and to, and, and to spend the rest of our lives exploring Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, all of that is true and beautiful and glorious and God's reckless love for his people is unfathomable, but, but Hosea wants the people of Israel to know there are consequences for their actions. God is a loving husband who pursues and renews covenant. He's also a loving father who disciplines his children. And they will experience God's discipline, and it's going to be intense. They are going to, in a few short years, they are going to be invaded by the people of Assyria, this great superpower of the world. is going to come in, and they're going to conquer 
and they're going to exile the people. The kingdom of Israel is going to be done. And they are going to experience, ironically, the betrayal of these one-time friends who have turned on them and come and destroyed everything they have. That is going to happen. And yes, it's going to be at the hands of the Assyrians and it's going to be at the hands of their, 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 their own bloodthirsty kings, but it's only because God has determined that they should be disciplined for their rebellion. And so that will happen. Hosea knows it's going to happen long before it does. He's a prophet. He warns the people. He gives them plenty of opportunity to turn and repent. He gives them plenty of opportunity for God to relent and they don't. And so they face the consequences of their rebellion. Imminent defeat and exile. But even then, even after being conquered, even after being separated from their temple, from their worship, from the very things of God, God again is going to be faithful in calling them back, calling them back, restoring them once more. So again, in chapter 3, verse 4 to 5, Hosea writes this, For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. What he's saying is there's going to be a time of exile. And if you're exiled from the temple, it means you can't worship God. God dwells in the temple And without the temple, without the priests, without the sacrifices, there is no worship. And so they're going to experience what they want to experience. They get what they want. They've rejected God. Here's how life is without God. Verse 5, Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Now, don't miss this. He's not referring to King David. He's long gone. He's referring to another David. He's referring to a king that is to come in the line of David. He's referring to a Messiah king. He's referring to the Lord Jesus. He says one day the Lord Jesus is going to come and he's going to call God's people back to him. And they are going to, in response, seek God and come with trembling and experience blessing. This is the great promise that God gives to the people of Israel in the time of Hosea. It won't always be this way. There is one coming who is going to call you home. And friends, if you're here this morning as a worshiper of Jesus, you are the beneficiary of God's grace in sending his Messiah King. He's the only reason we're here this morning worshiping. He's the only hope of Israel and of the nations. So that's section number one. Section two, we're going to move more quickly now. It's in chapter... Uh, 4 through to 10, and, and the, the major component of this, or the major theme of this section is, is Hosea explaining to the people, here's why you're in this predicament. Here's how we got here. Here's the, the causes and the effects of your adultery. And he says, the, the, big, the big problem with you guys, the big sort of the root 
that's driving this reckless rebellion is that there is no knowledge of God in this nation anymore. He says it this way in chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 6. Hear the word of the Lord, right? This is the prophet. This is the prophet speaking God's words to his people. This is the prophet calling, exhorting, warning his people. This is the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. My people are destroyed from what? Lack of knowledge. Now, super important for us, especially in our post-enlightenment, Western kind of way of thinking, he's not talking about knowing stuff. He's not saying you haven't spent enough time learning facts about God or even reading your Bible or going to college. Or he's, he's not, knowledge is not intellectual, it's relational. You remember in the first chapter of the Bible, Adam knew his wife Eve and she bore children. It's that kind of knowledge. It's intimate and relational. And he says, in this land, so-called God's people, the so-called people of God have no knowledge of God. And that's why there's no faithfulness, no love, and no acknowledgement. The problem with this people is that they know exactly what to do. They know exactly what to do come Saturday. They know exactly what rituals to perform, what sacrifices to make. The priests are decked out in all the right clothes. They say all the right prayers, and there is nothing to it. It's dead religion. These are people, Hosea says, who break the commandments of God. There are only ten of them, and they continually break each one. They commit grave social injustice. You want to see God angry? It's when his people brazenly commit social injustice, oppressing the poor, taking advantage of the needy. That's exactly what God's people are doing. They break commandments They commit social injustice and then on Sabbath they turn up and praise Yahweh. And God says, hypocrites! We're going to see when we get to the book of Malachi, which focuses on this very issue of dead religion, God says, I would rather you shut the doors of the church than come in and give me your false worship. Like, just shut this thing down. That's better than the hypocrisy that I have to deal with week to week. And so you see, Hosea is calling his people not to more knowledge, not to more ritual knowledge, not to more surface knowledge of what God is like or who he is or his commands, but intimate knowledge, relational knowledge. You know, it's not the, it's not, it's, It's only heart knowledge that can transform us, right? You can go to church every week of your life and live your hundred years and never change at all from one degree of glory to the next. This is the difference between a nominal Christian 
and a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Jesus himself gives this warning, right, to the, to the church in Ephesus. In, in Revelation chapter 2, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Tick, 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 tick. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. That is the knowledge that these people lack. And if it's a danger for the church in Ephesus, then it's a danger for the church in Caroline Springs. Do not forsake the love the knowledge, right? The intimacy that God desires. That's the major section of the book. It's just Hosea trying to lay that before the people over and over and over again. Please return. Please return. Please come back to the knowledge of God that he desires, that he requires, the kind of knowledge that exemplifies a faithful marriage relationship. Come back, come back, come back. And they over and over and over again, all throughout Hosea's 25-year ministry, they refuse and refuse and harden their hearts. I don't know if you've ever seen for yourself a marriage relationship where hearts have been hardened and they'll stay together because, you know, they're committed and to death do us part, but there is no love. That's the sorry state of affairs for the people of Israel, though God's heart is warm and open and pursuing, compassionate and long-suffering, their heart is hard. Which leads us to the third section, right? Hosea is going to give them in this section uh, a history lesson. And in this history lesson, he's going to make very clear that this is no new thing. Yes, these people are wayward and unfaithful, but this is no new thing. This is not a generational thing. This is just Israel. This is the people of God. They've always been this way. So he goes way, way, way back. He talks about how Jacob, this great patriarch of the faith, he lied in order to get where he got. Genesis 27 and 28. He, he goes to the, the, the wilderness rebellion after God had brought these people out of Israel, married them at Mount Sinai. Then that long-standing rebellion in the wilderness, Numbers 12 through to 20, just chapter after chapter of rebellion and adultery. He goes on, he, he talks about their, their making Saul king, that rebel, that man who was opposed to God in every way, that the fact that they made a king in the first place was a great dishonoring and betrayal of God, but that they made Saul king. And what happened with him, 1 Samuel 12 and 15, right? Just categorically unfaithful. So it says, here's the history lesson. You guys suck and you always have. And this is the purpose of it. He's not just an angry old man. He needs to get to the, to the point where they no longer trust in their rituals, in their own righteousness. He needs them to understand they have no hope apart from that reckless love of God. 
So he says in chapter 13, verse 4 to 6, quoting God himself, I have been the Lord your God ever since you came up out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no saviour except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, what happens? They became proud. Then they forgot me. Mark that. That's, we're all prone to that. We're all prone to take advantage of God's grace, to take advantage of his blessing and forget him. This is a good little test. If God offered you eternal life with all of its blessings, all of its eternal bliss, but offered it to you without his presence, would you still have it? Would you still take it? Would you be content to spend eternity in in heaven, in a perfected creation, with all of its blessings, if God himself wasn't there. We must not, we cannot divorce God's blessings from God himself. So that's the book of Hosea. That's the big idea. The question is, and we'll hear this over and over and over again, is there any hope at all? Like, if we're going to do 12 weeks of this, there is hope. And it comes to us in the most beautiful poetry in the Bible. In Hosea chapter 11 and chapter 14, God, through Hosea, writes these beautiful poems of hope. And I just want to put this before us, and I I want it to show us really clear the character of God. This is the God, remember, this is not Old Testament God who, who, who turns into something else in the New Testament. This is our God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the nature of God and the nature of the way he relates to us as his people. And so in chapter 11, you get this picture of God as this this heartbroken father. And and God's experiencing this this great conflict of emotions. He's experiencing exactly the kinds of emotions that a father would experience when when he realizes that the son that he has raised and nurtured and loved has turned against him and rebelled against him. It's the kind of... Emotion that sort of flits from anger to compassion to not hopelessness, but this this kind of tearing up of emotions. So he describes he describes the kind of relationship he has with with Israel, and, and you just read this, read yourself into this because this is you and me, right? In in chapter eleven and verse one to four, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. 
It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Just note in this book and some of the different, uh, some of these minor prophets, sometimes Israel is called Ephraim, sometimes Jacob. These are just the different words, different names for the same people, okay? It was I who talk, taught Ephraim to walk. Just, just think about him as a daddy, right? T- teaching his son to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. Is this your view of God? This is an amazing picture of God. This loving daddy. Cords of human kindness, ties of love, lifts a little child to the cheek, bent down to feed them, right? And so he has this great love for them, deep, deep paternal love for them, and yet they are going over and over again and rebelling and betraying him. And so he has this great emotional kind of tearing. He experiences the anger that a father would experience. So in verse 6 and 7, he says, A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God most high, I will no means, by no means exalt them. And at the same time as experiencing that kind of anger and judgment, in verse 8 to 13, we see, just see his compassion. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt trembling like sparrows, from Assyria fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. And so in the midst of this great emotional turmoil, he makes these promises to them that he will restore them, that he will, despite everything that he's due, he will welcome them home. It's that picture of the lost son, right? It's the lost son and the prodigal God, the reckless God. And again in chapter 14, another great poem where God promises that I will heal their waywardness. Mark that. Remember, they forever have been wayward. They can't help themselves. They don't just need to do better. They need to be healed. And so that's what he promises them. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. And he goes on to describe that they're going to become like this tree this tree of fruitful blessing that will bless the nations around them, this great picture of new covenant. So the question before us this morning is, how how do we respond to this word? I think what we need to do, what we need to do is to see Goma 
in all of her whoredom and adultery, to see Israel in all of her corresponding whoredom and adultery, and to see really, truly, honestly that we are Goma, that we are Israel, that we are in the same predicament, that we almost can't help ourselves, that our history is a history of continual and habitual and ongoing adultery. I just want to tell you, I was yesterday morning driving in to visit someone in the hospital and my whole drive was taken up with really honestly assessing my relationship with God. And praise God, I'm prone to self-recrimination and to shame, right? I didn't experience that. I just experienced a really honest appraisal of my relationship with God. And, and, and you know what that is? It is daily unfaithfulness. Daily unfaithfulness to God. And I just sat before God for the period of that trip and confessed. Confession is saying things like, Lord, I prefer sin to righteousness. I prefer my sovereignty to your sovereignty. I prefer my ways to your ways. Right? That real, honest confession. This morning, if we've understood Hosea rightly, then we will place ourselves in the same place, the same boat as Goma and Israel, as people of unfaithfulness. The good news is that just like Goma and just like Israel, God has for us an unspeakable, unmerited, unfailing, unconditional, unending love. And he's proven it in the giving of his own son. I hope you're there. I hope you're in that place now. It's the place where everyone who understands the gospel lives, aware of my unrighteousness and praising God for giving me his righteousness. I'm going to finish now by just reading to you a a psalm which I think really sums this up. It really sums up who we are and who God is. It sums up the fact that all of us, like Goma, like Israel, are absolutely, desperately in need of a love that we could never earn, we could never deserve. So you might like to close your eyes, and I'll just say this by way of, of prayer and blessing for us. This is from Psalm 103. I hope you recognize the words. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens 
are above the earth. So great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Father in heaven, we praise you for your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your long-suffering love. We thank you that at the very point where you had every right to divorce us and cast us away, you instead pursued us, forgave us, redeemed us, and did it all by the blood of your own Son. Lord God, this is reckless love. I pray that we would know it, that we would know it, and that it would transform us. And we pray these things in the beautiful name of Jesus.